Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. You're listening to episode 88 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and in this episode, I'll help you magic extra time into your music lessons. Hey there, beautiful teachers. So this episode is episode 88, which is a special number, of course, for us piano teachers, and so we had to have a bit of a magical episode. Today what I want to talk to you about is finding some extra time, inventing some time in your music lessons in various different ways. Some of that is real time, and some of it is just reshuffling what you're doing so that you can invent time within the time you already have. Did I say time enough times yet? Okay. So this is all about finding time really for other stuff that you want to do. And in particular, this is to help those teachers who come back to me and say, I wish I could include games. I wish I could include improvisation. But we just can't. There's just not enough time. And I do get that. It is tough. There's a lot we have to cover. And so if you're looking for more time to spend on games or something else in your lessons, I hope this episode will be helpful for you. For the first section, we'll talk about a few different ways that you could make actual time. As many of you will know, my favorite lesson format and the format I teach most of my students in, basically all my students except my mini musicians, which are in groups, and my adult students who take solo lessons, almost everyone else is in buddy lessons. And buddy lessons are where we have some solo portion, so in my studio at the moment, 30 minutes solo time, and then 30 minutes shared time with another student. So student A comes along, they spend 30 minutes with me, student B comes along and student A stays with us, so we have the two together, and then student A leaves after 60 minutes of time for them, and then student B stays for their solo time after that. So they've got that overlapping section in the middle that I call buddy time. And buddy time is a fantastic, fantastic thing for being able to improvise together, play duets, play games, go over theory concepts, and all sorts of other stuff. So that's the first suggestion. Maybe you could consider buddy lessons if that appeals to you. Another way to do this is to do partner lessons. So by partner lessons, I mean that the two students are sharing their full lesson time. It's not overlapping in the middle. They come for the same amount of time all the time they're together. 
And partner lessons can give you a longer amount of time with both your students without charging the parents, you know, a huge amount extra, which longer solo lessons would necessitate. But I will say you have to be pretty smart about partner lessons because let's say you have 45 minutes with two students or even an hour with two students. I do still have a few partner lessons as well where I have 60 minutes with two students. That doesn't feel like as much time, because it isn't, as my buddy lessons. Because in those, I have 30 minutes one-on-one with the student and then 30 minutes together. So for the two students, I have an hour and a half. Whereas with a buddy lesson, I have 60 minutes for the two together. And it works extremely well if the students are at exactly the same level. But they won't stay at exactly the same level for long. And so you have to be very strategic and plan carefully to make that work in the long term when the students, you know, start to get a bit further apart from each other. One will be ahead in theory, the other is ahead in technique. And so you have to balance all of that stuff. And so what often happens with partner lessons really is that they turn into what I would call rotating lessons where actually one student is doing some version of lab time. They're at an iPad or a keyboard practicing or doing theory work, something like that. And the other student is at the piano and then they swap. And maybe they have a small portion of the lesson together. If that's the case, you actually have less time than a 30-minute lesson because there's going to be some transition there. And so that's not really a good way of inventing time. So Just be aware that if you're thinking, oh, partner lessons sound good, it sounds like I'd have a lot more freedom to spend more time with my students. Well, yes, you would, but you're going to have to really alter your teaching style if you don't want it to turn into lab time and solo time. Not that that's not valid, just that it's not extra time. Okay, the next option is group lessons. This comes with the similar caveats to partner lessons, but it definitely does provide you with more time for things like games. It provides you with more opportunity for that, definitely. So if you have, say, 60-minute group lessons, students are probably going to spend less time at the piano, most likely, and more time working together on games, on theory. Generally, uh, group lessons, group teachers who teach primarily in group can argue with me on this. That's absolutely fine. But in general, group students tend to move a bit slower. And that's totally okay, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But that is what will tend to happen. They might have more fun along the way, but they tend to move that little bit slower. And so that's something to bear in mind there. But you definitely have more opportunity there for creativity and for games. Another option is to keep your lessons solo, private lessons as standard. Maybe stick with 30 minutes or 45 minutes, whatever you're currently doing and bring in some group workshops to complement those. So group workshops could be monthly, occasional, or they could be a weekly theory class. So in in several schools and studios, you will actually have two lessons every week as standard. And I think if this is done effectively, it can be really fantastic. The drawback for a lot of situations, a lot of communities, is going to be that parents have to bring the students to your studio twice a week. That's just what's going to have to happen because there's no way to schedule it magically so that they have a separate theory class and a separate solo class and not have that. If the things are back to back, it's going to turn into some version of buddy lessons, right? So anyway, 
So they're going to have to come to your studio twice a week, which can be a drawback for parents. But for those that are really invested in it, maybe that's the way you want to go. And that could be fantastic. Otherwise, maybe a monthly or occasional, you know, every eight weeks or six weeks or whatever, group workshop can be a fantastic way to do, to go. In my studio, I have group workshops four times a year, and those are on Sundays. So they're on my normal off day, and uh, we have group workshops on that day. And it does provide a lot more opportunity for these things that don't always fit into private lessons. So those are my suggestions for making actual time buddy lessons, partner lessons, group lessons, and group workshops. Those are ways to extend the time you spend with your students, other than, of course, just making your lessons longer. I'll talk about that at the end. The other option here is to try and save time, to make something more efficient. So one of my favourite ways to do this when it comes to theory is a flipped learning strategy. Now, I don't use this as consistently as maybe a classroom teacher would who's employing this strategy. But I do have videos to go along with all of my thinking theory workbooks. And those, when new concepts are introduced, there's always a video to go along with it, which is on YouTube. And so students can watch that and can either understand the page that they're supposed to be working on and do it without my help. Or they can watch that in advance of coming to the lesson and working on that concept with me, even if they're outside of the books. So if you want access to those, if it sounds interesting to you, they're totally free. They're up on my YouTube channel, whether you're using Thinking Theory or another theory workbook series or just teaching theory through games. Those could be a good resource for you. So we'll leave links to my YouTube channel on the show notes for this episode, which is at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 88. Or you can just search YouTube for Colourful Keys and you'll see them right there on my channel. There's a whole section that's Thinking Theory and it just has all of those playlists together. There's American and rest of the world versions for every single one. So there's a crotchet version and a quarter note version for every video. So that's one strategy is to employ videos so that you're not spending lesson time on explanations, which you basically give the same way every time. And you could absolutely record your own videos. So it doesn't have to be that you use my thinking theory ones. Recording videos has never been easier. You have a smartphone, most likely, that can record a perfectly good quality video of you explaining something, demonstrating something, and you can start to build up your own library of those. So if there's something that you find yourself teaching over and over, whip out your smartphone the next time you're about to teach it and record a video instead and send it to the parent and ask them to get the student to watch it before the next lesson. Provide some extra variety to their practice time as well, so most won't mind spending a few minutes on a video instead. So that's the first strategy is flipped learning. Then you've got independent study. And for this, I'm really referring mostly to pieces. So from time to time, I think it's important to give students a piece where we don't help them too much with it, where the goal is for them to tackle it as independently as they can. So this isn't going to be a super challenging piece. It's not going to be a piece that introduces a new concept. But we teach a lot of pieces which are actually just reviewing and consolidating learning that students have already done. And if that's the case, this can be a great opportunity for them to gain confidence in working on something by themselves to know that they can do it. Because my goal for students is that they keep playing long after they take lessons from me. And so if that's my goal, they need to have the skills and the confidence to take a piece that they haven't 
learned before that they've never even heard, maybe, and to take it apart and figure it out. For some students, this takes more time to develop than for others, but it's absolutely a valuable skill for all of them to be working on. So introducing more independent study, not as a default running through a new piece in the lesson, but sometimes just taking a look at it and going, you know what, I think you can do this by yourself. Do as much as you can without my help. And if you need my help, you know, come back to me with questions next week and we'll go through it. The more you do this, the better students will get at it. And it will save you that time that actually you were just listening to someone sight read something, which isn't really necessary, is it? Unless you have to force someone through sight reading because they need to work on that. That's a different story. Another way is to make scale practice or other technical work practice more motivating, more enjoyable. If you do that, you will remove all of the time that you spend just sitting there and babysitting scales. Anyone resonate with that? Do you do that? Where you're basically just sitting there while a student tries to remember the scale that they haven't done in a week and therefore cannot remember. And so they're just figuring it out and eventually they hit upon the right answer and maybe you're helping a little bit, but really, there is no point to you being there for that. And the reason it's happening is because you need to make sure that they stay on top of their scales, right? You can't just say, did you practice it? And if they say no, you don't hear it because then they learn that they can just not do them. So that's kind of the corner we we sometimes get backed into. And so we just sit there and babysit some scales. If the scale practice was more enjoyable, you wouldn't have to do that, right? So this is where using backing tracks and improvisation exercises can really bring scales into their own. For backing tracks, I love to use iReal Pro. And I have a video coming out on how I use that soon on the YouTube channel. So another reason to subscribe there. And what I did was set up circle of fifths and circle of fourths and chromatic drills of all the scales so that they, yes, it's more motivating. It's more interesting to practice along with a band than it is to practice solo. But it also means that they have to stay on track, right? They notice when they make mistakes more when there's a backing track because it's not going to wait for them. So making scale practice more enjoyable, more varied and more motivating could save an enormous amount of lesson time if you do find yourself sitting there babysitting scale practice. Another way to save lesson time is to come up with common practice procedures and make sure your students know them. This is a longer term project for sure. But if you get into the habit and the discipline really of teaching practice properly, teaching students to practice effectively using standard strategies, they don't have to be complicated, they can just be things like making sure something is right three times in a row or splitting apart bars, anything you can do that can be a repeatable procedure will actually save lesson time. Because students will come to you once they've built up this skill library in their brain, already having conquered something, already having gotten to the root of something. And they'll come to you saying things like, this is going pretty well, but I'm just having trouble with this one bit. I need your help with that. And so you can hone in on exactly where you can actually be helpful, rather than just listening to them stumble through a whole piece, most of which they could have fixed themselves. But there's a little bit in the middle but you end up helping them fix all of it because they didn't spend that effective time, even if they are practicing, they didn't focus during their practice time in a way that would see them get results in the areas that they don't need your help 
so that you can spend your time on the areas that do need your help. Another way is to bring in lab time. Now, this is related to the first section that we talked about, where we had different types of lessons and things. But lab time, I've really separated off into the save time bundle of strategies because it's not going to tend to create the time that you need for improvisation or games because you still need to be there for that. What it is going to do, though, is move some stuff off your private lesson plate so that you can save that lesson time. For example, again, scale practice can be done very effectively with the use of apps, with theory review, watching those flipped learning videos, doing theory work, listening to performances. All of that stuff could be done during lab time. So if you bring lab time into your studio, or if you already have it, and you're just not using it in this way, it can be a great thing to move everything that you don't actually need to sit by the student while they do it, move that to the lab time and you can save some of your private lesson time from that. One final way to save time for games that didn't really fit into either category is to institute a lending library for your games. So this is where you have your games set up in folders, either have them in plastic wallet folders and if you want to see how I do that, you can go to colourfulkeys.ie slash store or the, the show notes for this episode and the links will be there. I have them set up with everything inside that they could possibly need. And so I can lend them to students to play at home. So I'm literally moving the game out of the lesson time. And before I let you go, there's one final question I have to ask you, which I asked last week as well. So I hope you'll bear with me. But the question is, could you teach fewer students? longer lessons. I told you this comes up for me a lot and it comes up here too because you could rather than coming up with a different format rather than moving things out of your lessons all those strategies are great but the simpler answer may be if you're someone that really likes one-on-one lessons and you don't like all these fancy different strategies maybe you'd just be better off with 45 minute lessons if you're only teaching 30. Or hours if you're only teaching 45. You have to do the thing that works for you. And I don't know when 30-minute lessons became the standard. I was talking about this with someone recently. Saying I would love to know who did it. If anyone can tell me, I would love to know. When did they start to become the standard? When did we decide on 30 minutes as a standard lesson time? And why? I'm sure someone knows the answer to this question. Because I'm sure... Beethoven was not walking into his students' houses and teaching for only 30 minutes. So when did it happen? But that's just an aside. The point is, 30-minute lessons shouldn't be some golden rule. There's no reason that I can see why you have to teach 30-minute lessons just because most people in your town do. So if you would be better off with 45-minute lessons and fewer students paying for that time, then so be it. Do that. It might save you a whole lot of headaches and stress. Okay, that's it for this week. I hope you got a lot out of this episode, the magic number 88 episode, and that it gave you some ideas for strategies for saving some time and inventing some new time in your lessons so that you can play more games, have more fun, and be more relaxed as a teacher. See you on the next episode. Bye for now. If you've found the time in your lessons, but you haven't found fantastic games to play during that time, then you need to become a member of Vibrant Music Teaching. 
You can sign up today at vmt.ninja and get access to about 200 games as well as tons of other great resources, videos and trainings. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.